If you need a Bible, there are Bibles in the back. We always say you can slip up your hand. If you need one, we'll bring you one, or you can just go grab one. If you don't own a Bible, please keep it. It's our gift to you. We'd love for you to uh, have that to study and uh, have as your own. So if you do have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. We're on the tail end of landing the plane in this book. Uh, It's been a really fun study if you've been with us for uh, a number of weeks. Um, The book of Ephesians is basically concerned primarily with you understanding what it means and what it looks like to be in Christ. And so uh, what it means to be chosen by him, adopted by him, saved by him, sealed by him, loved by him, welcomed by him, uh, freed from your enslavement and captivity, then brought into a new family, into a new family of God, into a new kingdom, out of the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of light. And then we saw how uh, it's not just this uh, exclusive thing, but it's an inclusive thing where uh, all races and ethnicities get brought into this thing that as the church gathers, as God forms it, it cultivates greater worship to the heavens. There's actually angels that worship more because of the ways that they see the marvel of God, the majesty of God in informing his church. And then he got into the practical side in verses in chapters four through six about how do we now live in light of who we are. We talk all the time about how you can't flip verses or chapters in the Bible or you get all messed up in your theology. So here's what a lot of people do. A lot of people, if they're tempted to be a legalist, which means you think by going to church and praying and doing more chants and loving your neighbor and feeding the poor obtains more favor on your behalf from God, which is not true. It's solely done by Christ. So what you do is you love chapters four through six because it makes you feel better. Okay, so you think if you can just stay there and forget the first three, that it's actually earning you favor, earning you atonement, earning you forgiveness, which doesn't happen. You have to be redeemed first. You have to be forgiven first. Christ has to go to the cross first. You have to trust in that first before you do anything. Okay, so you're now motivated by the grace of God in your life. Okay, you're not doing things to obtain the grace of God in your life. And so where we are in Ephesians very clearly is showing that, okay, we're not now putting on the armor because we're afraid of losing the promises of God. Okay, understand, that's not what's at stake. You're You're not being tempted to lose your salvation. Okay, Satan can't do that. Okay, Satan can't overthrow God's hand and arm and grip on your life. You can't do that, okay? But what Satan can do is render you useless, seeing that, that God in his providence has, has already secured us in Christ. That's not what we're, what we're afraid of. The encouragement from Paul last week was what? To stand firm, okay? Why does he want us to stand firm? Okay, so that you keep your joy and you keep your effectiveness, right? So understand uh, we're not talking about fear of losing salvation or security or the promises of God. And so uh, we can fall into sin, we can fall into arrogance, we can fall into unawareness, and that leaves you completely ineffective for the war that we're in. Now, we've been seeing how in living this Christian war, this Christian life, there's an offense and a defensive kind of perspective, right? So yes, we're called to go and advance the kingdom of light. We're called to go in and rescue those by the, by the help of the Holy Spirit, by God's sovereign power to proclaim this good news that he wants to deliver you the captives. He wants to set them free. He wants to set people free from addiction of this world, that, that this fractured world that taints all of us, none of us escape. He offers freedom, fixing, deliverance, right? So we want to do that. But as you become effective in your offense, what happens? You need defense, Why? Because all of a sudden the the enemy of darkness sees that you're a threat, right, to the kingdom of darkness because the kingdom of light is advancing. And so he hates that, so he starts unloading on you. Why? Because he doesn't want to see people brought into the kingdom of light. We know this. If you play any type of sport, you know this, right? When you're good on offense, you've got to be good on defense. I remember when I was at one of my friend's houses doing a, a reunion, and they always picked to play the sport that I'm terrible at, so they picked basketball. If you haven't noticed, I'm all torso, so my vertical's negative. I go down when I jump. I don't know how that works, right? So, so no one wants me on their team. So they're doing like, you know, like back in first grade, they're picking teams, and I'm last, but I'm like out of college. I'm like, come on, man. Like, I should get some self-esteem now, like if there's any time for it. So they pick, oh, fine, we'll take Mike. So they take me. I don't know what happened. Only time in my life. I, w- I was draining threes. But I'm telling you, like, I'm, I'm terrible. I can't even hit the rim. For whatever reason, on that given day, man, my offense was unbelievable. So they're like, get the ball to Mike. Like, everyone's like, Mike was on the bench. So they put me in because one guy was puking, so I had to go in. So they put me in. They're like, man, just start. And I'm just, everything I throw up is going in. I'm just walking. Just boop. And it's just like sinking. It was so insane. So, so what happened, man, all of a sudden everyone's like, hey, 
double-team Mike. Right, all of a sudden, the other, the other team, the other group of guys is like, man, get on and double-team. I'm like, man, I've never been double-teamed in my life in basketball. This is amazing. But I'm telling you, this is exactly what happens in the spiritual battle, right? You start advancing. You start being effective and useful. And what happens? You start getting triple-teamed, quadruple-teamed. So this is why, man, don't find it strange in your life when all of a sudden God begins to bubble up just glories of his name. You start loving his name. You start seeing more of him. You start loving more of him. All of a sudden, your life starts getting a little more challenging, You can't always attribute it to Satan, but in many cases he loves bringing discouragement and doubt and deception precisely when you begin advancing the kingdom of light. So that's why the first few weeks we're saying you can't be unaware. You can't be under a rock. There's a real war going on. We talked about how it's cosmic in scale. How in the the original language there's not even a word to describe the number of angels and adversaries warring in the galaxies. So we said, wow, that seems daunting, and yet God in Christ gives us some protection, which is a blessing. We're going to see this morning just two of those, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness that he gives us for our usefulness, for our joy, and for our defense against the enemy. And last week we said Satan only knows how to do one thing, right? Lie. Now, he lies through deception, he lies through deceit, he lies through discouragement. So yeah, he does all those things, but he can only do it doing a half-truth or no truth. So he might, he might tell you some things that are partly true, but he never gets the whole truth, okay? You meet some people like that, they don't tell the whole truth, just the half, that's still not the truth. And so here we're seeing that Satan only knows how to do that. So it's appropriate that one of the first lines of defense Paul mentions is to arm yourself with the truth, Right? Because what refutes a lie? The truth. Here's what he says in verse 14. He says, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Okay, now just just to give us some, some helpful backdrop. Paul was very familiar with Roman soldiers, okay? They ruled the known world at the time. Okay, so he knew what they looked like. And whenever you saw a Roman soldier get dressed, okay, it was one of the first things you noticed was the belt they put on or like a sash. Okay, and here's why. Roman soldiers wore what was like a, like a long dress for men. It, so, it sounds so anti-masculine, but that's just what they wore with like two holes for your arms and one hole for your head. Kind of looks like a Halloween costume one of you guys might wear on Halloween, you know, where you just put your head through in your arms and it's just long. So they had, to, they had to wear something around it to keep this tunic from just blowing up, right? Because what do you want in war? You want to be agile, right? You want to be able to move. You don't want to be like hindered. So if it's a windy day and the tunic's blowing all over the place, that's not helpful. So one of the first things you notice is this belt they would put on to help secure your tunic. And there was a sash on there. They put medals on it from victories or wars that they went into. So it was a way to also show this indicated for you that you were going to battle. Now, this makes so much sense because what is Paul's whole point here? You can't go into the war if you're not prepared. Right? So the the belt actually signified to people, wow, okay, he's either been in war or he's going into war. Okay, so you can't enter the war without fundamentally the truth first. You actually can't wear any other piece of armor without the belt of truth. And we're going to see why right here. The belt is the the central piece of armor that holds every other piece of armor really securely together. So even the breastplate comes down, locks on. Your sword, a lot of your weapons are in your belt or in your sash. Okay, so you need your belt to even secure all the other pieces of armor. And Paul calls this the belt of truth. Now, what is he talking about? I think there's a lot of texts. But one in particular that helps is John 17, where Jesus says what? Jesus says this. He says, he says sanctify them in the truth. Well, what's the truth? Your word. Your word is the truth. Okay, so the belt of truth in one sense. We're going to talk about two kind of facets of it. One sense, it's content in nature. Okay? Now, here's a good way to understand it, because you get to the sword of the Spirit later, which is also the Word of God, but it's the spoken Word of God. So I like to see the belt as the written Word of God, and the sword is the spoken Word of God. So unless you have the written Word of God, you can't speak the written Word of God, okay? And so he's talking about the truth being the Bible, the Word, right? This also, we can say Jesus. Jesus was the Word, John 1. He is the Word made flesh, Okay, so if you don't know Jesus, you can't have any protection against the adversary. There's, there's a lot of different facets to here, but, but let's just talk about this content in nature. 
because each one of these weapons is primarily used to combat a scheme or tactic. So because we know Satan lies, you have to be armed with what's true. If you don't know what's true, you're going to be a train wreck, right? You're going to be blown away by everyone in doctrine. If you're, if you're, if you're feeling condemned or, or you're being lied to and you don't know what's true, right, then how will you ever come out of that? We write just in normal living, right? If you know the truth about something, then, then you don't know how to discern if it's not true, right? And so here he's showing us that we have to know what is true because John 8 says what? He's a father of lies, Right? He only knows how to lie. So what's his original language? It's not English, it's not Greek, it's not Arabic, it's lie. That's all Satan knows how to do. He only knows how to lie. So everything that comes out of his mouth is a lie, it's deceit, it's not true. And so as he does, does these lies, he says you have to arm yourself with the truth. Now, here's the thing. As he lies to you, he's really only concerned with one thing. Getting you to believe it. He doesn't care if it's true. You've you got to understand that. Like, Satan's about you believing it, not it being true. So, for example, let's say I went to one of you who's married, and I, I was able to convince you. And I said, hey, your husband, I've seen him out with someone. I don't think he's faithful to you. I think he's got another girlfriend the whole time you've been married. What would that do to you, even if it wasn't true? Would that change the relationship? Absolutely it would. Right? Because I just have to get you to believe it. Right? It doesn't have to be true. I just have to get you to believe that it's true. And so all of a sudden, you're like all over the place in your marriage. Right? Because I start sowing seeds of deception. I start kind of giving you lies, giving you lingers, things to go after. And, and you can try to seek it out. Now, eventually, hopefully, you'll be able to uncover if it was or not. But my goal is not to persuade you of truth, but whether or not you can just believe what I say. Because understand, Satan can't dissuade the truth. He can only try and get you to believe it. He can't say anything about truth that takes away its truthfulness because it's by essence is that way. Some of you guys are saying, yeah, but it's not true. I know. It doesn't need to be true. It just needs to be believed by you. So Satan knows something doesn't need to be true, just be believed. So he'll lie to you by sending you false teachers, terrible counselors, just roll the highlight reel of all your sins, the VIP, right? All the big ones, right? Just flash them up consistently. It'll bring up past baggage. It'll bring up all the things about you that you haven't done well, that you failed in, to try to get you to believe you're unworthy, to get believe you you're worthy of condemnation, which we are, but we don't believe that God came and made us worthy by Christ, right? So we'll give you a half-truth. Or we'll lie and say, hey, you really did do that. Yeah, I did do that. But what's the truth? You're no longer condemned by that in Christ. So he won't go all the way, he'll just go part of the way. So he'll do whatever he can to get you to believe your unworthiness, you are condemned, you're not forgiven. He'll make you speculate a lot. He'll lie about God's word, he'll lie about God's church, he'll lie about God's leaders, he'll use people. So what do you do? Well, what's true, right? And, and here's why this is so important. Some of you are completely ruled by lies. Some of you are in such deep captivity by lies that you are utterly handicapped. You are utterly useless in the war because every morning you wake up, you believe every lie and not a single word of God's truth. So you're just going about just like you can't even figure it out. You're drowning. You're trying to keep your head above water. Right when God's given you the full oxygen tank, right? He's even offered you rescuing out of it, right? But sometimes we love to kind of live in there. And so your life is built around believing things that aren't true. And, and what does Jesus say right before he says that Satan is the father of lies? What does he say? He says, if you know the truth, the truth will what? Set you free. So here's the thing. If you're living in bondage, if you're living in captivity, then you're not believing truth, I mean, you, you gotta understand that. Like, like those don't work together. You don't believe the truth and then, and then feel more enslaved. 
Right? It's liberating. That's what the gospel fundamentally does is when you understand that, wait, Christ took all of my sin, bore the wrath of God towards me that I deserved. Wait, wait, doesn't just forgive me, gives me all his righteousness and then says, here you go, here's a new family. Hey, I'm a new dad. Hey, I love you perfectly. Hey, you're rich in Christ. Hey, you got an eternal future glory waiting for you. Go, no way. You feel free. You don't feel enslaved. Then you look at the others who are bound by the kingdom of darkness and you begin to have compassion because you realize what you were in. Until you're delivered out of prison, you don't realize what prison was. Until you experience freedom outside of it. And God's grace has done that for those of us that are in Christ. So the truth gets you out of bondage. So when you hear a lie, we have to go to the written word of God and understand and discern, okay, is this true or false? Is this of God or is this of Satan? That's why we have to know our scripture, our Bible. This is why we believe in teaching books of the Bible. Because we want you guys to know what the Bible says. I don't want you to know what I think about something and just pick topics and then sprinkle text on it. Like I want you to know what God's already said and look at it in context, in revelation, how he's written it, what it means, and then walk in grace. To be equipped by the scriptures so that we're people who know the truth. This is why last week I talked about not basing our beliefs solely on how you feel. So many people go, yeah, but I feel. Well, that's your problem. You need to think. You're not thinking. Right? No, you need to think what is true, not just how you feel. I said, at the end of the day, when you wake up, which most of us will tomorrow, having a bad day, bad day at work, a little bit of despair, maybe something didn't go right, where do your feet land? On how you feel or on solid truth that Jesus has you, that he's carrying your anxieties, that he offers you strength, he offers you peace. He granted you his Holy Spirit to walk with you and guide you and love you, that all of your work is glorious worship, that no one's doing anything meaningless or mundane. Are we remembering truth when we wake up or just buying the lies? You're worthless. This job stinks. God doesn't want me here. No, he puts you there by his grace. For freedom. And so does this lead you into bondage or lead you into freedom? We need to memorize the truth, read the truth, record the truth, hold the truth, heed the truth, love the truth. We're going to see if you, if, if you do all those things with the truth, if you love the truth, you'll go to war for it. You'll go fight, right? And so this happens over time is as you begin filling your mind with the truth about God, the truth about sin, the truth about the world, the truth about culture, the truth about the heavenly things, the truth about eternity, the truth about sin and death and heaven and hell. As you begin to fill yourself with that truth, what happens? When you hear a lie, the time span grows shorter for you to refute that lie because you've been filling yourself with what's true. I mean, this happens Okay, all the time, people who like wander away from the church and then they get caught up in a sin and then they just find themselves in a place of like just destruction, the marriage is falling apart, they come and go, man, I don't don't know what happened. You wandered from the truth. You stopped sitting under the preaching of God's word. You stopped gathering with the faithful that would encourage you in the truth. You stopped wanting to listen to the truth. You stopped loving your sin more than the truth. What do you mean what happened? You begin buying the lie over what was true. So how do we use this belt? Uh, there are a thousand ways. We're going to get more practical when we talk about the sword of the spirit. But I was thinking this week about the parable of the sower in Mark 4. And what happens? The, the seed is the truth. Okay? So the sower goes and he throws the seed out. right, And it lands on a bunch of different soils, which represents our hearts. What happens? It lands on a bunch. One seed falls on the path. And what happens? The birds come over. They eat it up. Some soil falls on the, the rocky ground and immediately it springs up and it doesn't have any roots so it withers away. Other seed falls on the thorns. The thorns grow up and choke it out. Other th- seeds come and the devil comes and snatches it away. But then the last seed falls on good soil, takes root, and what happens? Starts producing a huge harvest increasing and yielding 30, 60, and 100 fold. And then Jesus says at the end, if you don't understand this parable, you won't understand anything I say. And then he says in verse 20 this, the sower sows the word. Those that were sown on the, on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. 
thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. So the word is sown into the heart, and he says it has to be accepted. That means trusted, believed in. So, here's the first thing. If you're in here and you're not a Christian, don't go trying to strap on a bunch of armor that you don't have access to. Like, you need to trust and believe the truth who is Jesus. Because he is fundamentally the word. The living word made flesh has always been the word. We now have the word Written as revelation, right? But Jesus was always the word. And so, so you have to trust that Jesus died for you. Jesus rose for you. Jesus imparted his righteousness for you. Jesus took all his sin, on the, all your sin on the cross for him. He became your sin for you and then gives you his righteousness. You have to believe in that transaction. Trust in him. Make him your king, him your lord, him your allegiance, him your commander in chief. And then you can start putting the belt on, the shoes on, the breastplate on, grabbing the sword. But don't get ahead of yourself. Like, you you have to believe the truth. So he's showing us that practically, fundamentally, to wear the belt of truth is to be a Christian. It's to trust in Jesus. It's to know truth. Truth embodied, which is Christ. So only a, a repentant heart can wear the belt. Only someone who sees that the word was made flesh and sows it into his heart. You need to know the truth, the only one who is the truth, which is Jesus. So do you know the truth? And then we begin to experience all that he is in his truth, in his written word. That's why Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 21 is all about Jesus. The word. The one who was coming, the one who did come, the one who will return. All of redemptive history. So when you pick up this book, that's why no matter what book we teach, we're going to be teaching Jonah next. So we're going to see a lot of Jesus in Jonah. Old Testament, doesn't matter. Right? We saw Jesus in Genesis. Right? Jesus in Haggai. Jesus in Ephesians. Right? It doesn't matter where you open up your Bible, you should see more of the glorious reality of the Word, the perfect Word who the whole Bible testifies to. That's what you need. And so we want the truth, which is Jesus. And so we, we sow this into our hearts. We sow the word. We sow Jesus. We love him. We lean into him. We trust him. We embrace him. We run to him. It's part of what it looks like. So the one aspect is content. But the other part of this also speaks of commitment to the truth. Okay? Like attitude. And if you read this in the language, it's really what it's getting at because of these two parts of the sword of the spirit, which he really gets at in using the word, it's more than just content. It's also your commitment to the truth. Jesus said, what? You don't go to war unless you count the cost, right? Like, like no, 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 no soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs. Like, he gets, he gets what's ahead. He gets what he's signing up for, Right? I mean, that's why when I sit down with some people, and I, I remember when I was doing high school ministry, I'd sit down with these high school students and go, okay, hold on. I know you want to trust Jesus, but, but, but do you realize that might mean that your parents will hate you? Yeah, yeah, I got that. Okay, okay, I just, I want, I want to make sure you know what you're signing up for. You, you realize that your friends at school will probably make fun of you. You realize your popularity might decrease. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I, those are the most beautiful conversations because they, they know what they're signing up for. They know what war they're walking into. They don't have foggy eyes and some unrealistic expectation. But they know the glories of it, the joy of it. Finding other brothers and sisters to war with, to grab others and bring them into the family of God. So it also speaks of this attitude. Because if you believe the truth, love the truth, you'll be committed to the truth and you'll go to war for the truth. Jude says what? We contend for the faith entrusted once to all the saints, right? We contend for it. We go to war for it. So here, remember, Paul is specifically talking about defending against the spiritual war, right? Against the enemies. Not necessarily talking about advancing the gospel. He's talking about this defense against our adversary. So what this means is following this attitude, if you're content with sin, you don't think it's a big deal? If, if you're content with, like, mediocre worship in your life, like, ah, I go to church once every, like, six weeks, 
Or like, yeah, I kind of have a prayerless life, but I'm cool with that. Like, if you're just fine with like just, just average Christian war mentality, you're going to be fundamentally a hindered soldier. Right? If you're not committed, if there's not an attitude of commitment to the truth, I mean, I mean what are you really doing with your life, right? I mean, what, what's really happening? So we're seeing this idea, this understanding of being committed to what is true because this leads us out of bondage and into light. Hebrews says if you're going to run the race, man, throw off everything that entangles you, right? Get rid of it so you can run. Paul's saying by attitude, don't be a useless soldier. Now, now there's, a, there's a really awesome uh, understanding in Latin. If you understand this idea of this sincere commitment to truth, the, the, the Latins would call this thing without wax, Okay, this idea of sincere in Latin, it means without wax. What would happen is as they made pots and they made these clay objects, what they would do is if it had cracks in it, they would go put wax over it, fill in the cracks with wax, let it harden, then they'd sell it. What would happen? You get home, put that pot on your stove, you turn up the heat, and as soon as you turn up the heat, the the wax would melt. But what happens? It becomes a useless pot as soon as the heat's turned up. Okay, okay, what, what, what is this getting at? If you're not committed to the truth, as soon as the heat's turned up in your life, those cracks are going to be exposed. The wax will melt. Without any sincerity to Christ, you're going to be shipwrecked in your faith, right? This all comes back to true conversion. This all comes back to chapter 1. Right, the, the one hope we have, the one security we have is that, man, at the end of the day, if Christ secures you, if Christ saves you, you don't have to worry about being a pot that has wax on it because your commitment will endure. Right, you're not going to fall off the wagon. Like, God's not going to let you go. He's not going to let you out of his hand. So, so the Christians know they continue, they persevere, they endure, they walk forward, Right? We know that the true Christian is committed and the truth bears weight. It's sown into his heart. There's fruits of the spirit. They start walking in the light. They start hating their sin. They start embracing all of those things for God's glory. And that's what we see. So he's getting at this idea of unless you're a true born-again Christian, you won't make it in the war. But when Christ gives us his Holy Spirit, he enables us to walk faithfully and endure, endure to the end. Imagine just for a moment you get a phone call. From the general commander-in-chief. One of them, right? Can be Daniel Allen or Mark Miley. The, the general commanders-in-chief of the United States Army. They call you up and say, hey, we want to enlist you in the United States Army. Right? And, and then they say, hey, do you think you could fit that in your week? Do you think you could give us, like, partial commitment? I mean, you could show up, like, two days a week. Or, or you know what? We got a uniform we want you to wear. You could wear it, like... Sometimes, as you, as you feel led, you know, as the Spirit leads you, you could, you'd be like, no, that's insane. When you enlist, you are by identity 24-7 a soldier, right? Like, you're not, you're not second-guessing it. You're not like, well, I'm not sure if I feel like going to war today. You're going to get killed, right? I mean, you're gonna, so, so this is what it's like in the spiritual battle. Right, this, is what, this is what God is saying to us, and I was thinking about this a lot, that, that you, you by fundamental identity, if you're in Christ, you are enlisted not by some earthly puny man. You're enlisted by the commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ, the one who has all authority over heaven and earth. He says, hey, you're mine. I just grafted you into this family. You're a part of this army. Go make war. You're committed to my cause. You're committed to my glory. You're committed to the unsaved and the lost and the saved. You're committed to my church. You're committed to me. You're committed to all those things. And we say, okay, we strap on the belt, put on the breastplate, put on the helmet, put on the shoes, and we go to war. Grab our sword Sometimes very tired, sometimes very overwhelmed with anxiety, sometimes very discouraged. But it doesn't unenlist you. You're still in the army. You need your teammates. You need to follow your chief who goes before you, who you can trust endlessly. Which gives us confidence, right? I want to take a quick, quick pit stop here because I think this brings up something worth noting. We talk about taking the Christian life seriously, 
a lot of us probably do not take our sins seriously. The Bible, the Bible says, according to the scriptures, that the Christian life is violent. Right? Colossians 3, you're supposed to actually put to death that which is earthly in you. It's one of the only times that murder is okay. Right? It says, yeah, if you're going to kill anything, you're going to murder anything, yeah, murder malice and slander and hate and anger. But, but here's, here's, here's the problem is we don't declare war on our sin because we don't think it's really a big deal. Like, you try to treat it like it's a pet and just control it and manage it, right? Once I have that thing controlled or kind of tamed, then it's okay and I'll move on to the next one. That, that scriptures say, right, the lion, our adversary is looking to devour you, eat you. Okay, that's, that's not like a cat that's walking by looking to go, meow. Like, like you know what I mean? Like, like, wake up. Like, this is a lion looking to devour you, right? Using sin, using deceit, using falsehood, not using truth. Right? He's looking to utterly render you useless for the cause of Christ. So what we do is we look at it and we're like, man, well, well, we just don't really want to put our sin to death. I just, I kind of like it, so I want to just control it a bit so it's still there for me if I want it. And so what you do is you spend your whole life, when you get angry at someone or you think you're owed something, they don't give it to you, so you get frustrated and bitter because you're sinful, because you're wicked. I'm wicked too, don't worry, right? So, so that all happens to us. You run to that sin for comfort instead of God for comfort because that's what you really want because you didn't kill it. You didn't put it away. Some of you men in this room are addicted to pornography. You don't want to kill your sin. You don't. That's why you keep looking at it. Throw your computer out. Well, how do I work then? I don't know. How do you get to heaven? I'm, I'm serious. I'm serious. And what does Matthew say? It's better for you to get into the gates of heaven with one eye than both to be cast into the fires of hell. Yes, Christ gets you in. And Christ gives the ability to destroy the deeds of the flesh. So you might have to practice some Romans 14, making no provision for your flesh. You don't gratify the desires of your flesh. People say, oh, you're so legalistic. No, I'm not. I care about your spiritual health. I'm not voiding this of the word of God. I'm not voiding this of, of Christ empowering you and using you and enabling you. But I'm saying there is action called. God calls us to act. He calls us to put to death. In seminary, I hear professors all the time as I was there saying, man, they'd have kids coming to them saying, man, I just can't stop looking at this, looking at this, and well, I can't get rid of my computer because then how will I do my things? Well, go to the library. Well, the library's only open until midnight. Well, then you're going to have to not eat and go to the library earlier and spend your day studying there, and you'll figure it out. It just reveals right away what you really believe about your sin and what you really want. Kill sin or it'll kill you. That's what John Owen said. Some good words. Make war on your sin. Declare war on it. Don't treat it like a pet. I was watching this show one time where there was this company selling watches, and they had this model laid down with this lion, and they thought it was cute and cool, and you know, they thought it all made a really good scene. Then the lion gets up and bites the girl. Everyone's like, this is nuts. We're going, no, it's not. It's trained to do that. That's what it does. It eats. Like, people don't hunt the lion. Right? The lion hunts everything else. Like, this is really important. Really important for us to understand. Like, don't treat your sin like it's a cat. Treat it like it's a lion waiting to wreak havoc in the right circumstance in the right time. You might, you might, and see, this is why so many of us have seasons, right? We do really well for a while, then we find seasons we don't do well, seasons we do really good, seasons we don't really do really well. That's why you find yourself in that because, yeah, you're good at doing it for a season, but with the right circumstance and the right setting, it will eat you alive unless you kill it. Listen, you put Chick-fil-A in front of me, I'll eat it every time. I'm, I'm telling you, I, I'm, I'm confessing, right? This is me confessing right now. My wife knows it. I, I, am, I just love Chick-fil-A, and I'm telling you. Now, I'm not going to eat this morning because I had a really good breakfast, all right? But most times, why? Because, man, that's just something that I, I just I love, right? So when the lion acts that way, we don't go, wow, that's insane. I can't believe he acted that way. We go, no, it's what, it's what he loves. He loves to eat. He loves to hunt. He loves to kill. You could train it for a while. You could tame it for a while. 
So when that happens, don't be surprised. Maybe you gave room for something that you couldn't really control and you thought you could. Only Christ can put that to death. Only Christ can control that with the power of the Holy Spirit in you. So we must know the truth and be committed to the truth. And part of that is understanding the truth about sin. Listen, if, if I'm the head of the household, I understand that if, if I'm devoured, my family will be next. Okay, so you men here who are head of your homes, you get that? Like if, 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 if he devours you and you don't care about your sin, you don't care about lusting after this person or that person, you don't care about conforming to truth, you do realize that, that when you do get devoured that then your wife comes next and then your children come next, right? Like the lion goes after the head and he goes after the family. So, so suit up. Take it seriously. Take your role seriously. It's okay, look, we're not perfect. Just need to call to be faithful. Put on the armor. Strap it on. Soak in the truth. Get to know the truth. Help, help out your family when they're trying to discern lies. Hey, this is what God says. I'm constantly challenged with this, to, to pray with my family and pray with my wife. I don't do it perfectly. And I can see when, like, there, there's, a, there's a temptation. I see when it's not going well, and i got to pull it back. Right? So there's an awareness and alertness we need to have. That's all part of this thing. Guys, we got to know the truth about all things, including sin. The Christian war is violent. So this is what this means, men. Don't just starve your sin. Starve it to death. Okay? A lot of us like to starve it. Escape from it. you got to kill it. Next he says this, put on the breastplate. I love this. These two go really well together because one of the most glorious truths is Jesus' righteousness that he gives to us. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, each breastplate, if you know Roman soldiering, it was actually, they usually actually take torsos of the men and actually make casts out of them. So the breastplate actually perfectly conformed to their torso, right? So it, it fit them just well and then it would buckle onto the belt. So they had this breastplate of righteousness that they would wear, and it protected the heart, vital organs. And there's two aspects of this that we're going we're gonna to close with. I want to talk about two. One is imputed and one is imparted. Okay, I'm, I'm going to explain what that is. So, so one aspect of this, aspect of this is, is we're wearing the imputed righteousness of Jesus. Okay, here's what that means biblically. That means according to the scriptures, when God sent Jesus and he saw us in our sin and the wrath of God was towards us and we had no hope, no security, no freedom, no identity outside of him, right, he comes and he sends Jesus. Jesus lives a perfect life for us. He dies, he takes our sin with him, bears the wrath of God towards sin. He rises, validates all that he did, but he doesn't just give us forgiveness. Like understand, he didn't stop there. If he stopped there, you wouldn't get into heaven. Because that brings you to zero. Okay? You need unlimited righteousness. Okay, so what does he do? He not only brings you to zero by taking on all your sin and killing it, nailing it to the cross. He then says, hey, I'm going to credit you the righteousness of my son. So you go from zero to infinity righteousness. It's like you go into your bank account tomorrow and you've got a billion dollars in your bank account. You're going, what? What the heck? Where did that show up? Someone credited it to your account. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 4 says Abraham was credited the righteousness of God by his belief, by his faith in him. That's, that's amazing. That, that's a truth that he wants you to wear all the time. Why? Because Satan is going to fire missile after missile after missile saying, you are unworthy, you're condemned, look at all you've done, you're so screwed up, you're so dirty, you can never obtain the grace and mercy and kindness of God. Look at, look at your family, look at what you grew up with, look at all these things that have happened to you, and he says, you're righteous. By no act of you, wake up with that breastplate, like every morning, Right? And just kill the missiles and go, no, I'm righteous in Christ. I mean, I don't even, look, guys, I agree with you. 
I don't, I don't understand that. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand how God could look at wicked Mike Reed, sinful Mike Reed, and say, hold on a second. When I stand before him, when I look at the throne of heaven, when all is said and done, you're going to not see the stain-filled dirt of Mike. You're going to see the righteousness of your son? Really? Help me to believe that. Help me to treasure that. So when you screw up today, this afternoon, you embrace the imputed righteousness. You wear that breastplate. You say, nope, nope, no lie here. Mm-mm. I'm made righteous. He made me worthy. When I wasn't, he counts me righteous in his sight. Many Christians do not know they've been made righteous. Many Christians walk in consistent guilt and condemnation because they do not embrace and understand what God has done. Further, the devil will try to talk you out of it, out of you wearing your breastplate, right? He'll use all sorts of lies. He'll get all in your head. He'll say a ton of different things, tell you you're not righteous, you're not forgiven, you're not accepted. He'll throw all past sins in your face, the very sins that God removed as far as the east is from the west. Guys, this is a daily putting on of this armor. Like, you don't put it on one time and you're good. Like, there are going to be seasons for you where there's a relentless attack, relentless shots. And you're like on the ground just trying to survive. Keep your breastplate on. Remember what he's done for you in Christ, that he's freely given his righteousness to you. The other part of this, which I think does matter, is this understanding of imparted righteousness. Okay, so yes, you are declared righteous by God. Okay, so positionally, when we trust in Christ and we're converted when he gives us his Holy Spirit, right, when conversion happens, we're seen as the righteousness of God, right? There's also this understanding of imparted righteousness, which means not only are we declared righteous, but we're now commanded to live righteous and holy lives. And if you're not committed to that, you're not going to wage war well. So, so now he gives you his Holy Spirit and begins to infuse you. We call, we call it progressive sanctification. We don't believe that you're just all of a sudden literally perfect. We know that I still struggle with the residual effects of the fall. I live in a fleshly body. I still wage war against my sin. We also know that I'm not, not at all. We know that God has given us fruits of the Spirit. We know that he's given us a new heart, a new mind. We know that he begins to do that. So as you walk, as you pray, as you read your Bible, as you love Jesus, you begin progressively over time conforming more to the image of the Son. You grow in your practical and positional, no, practical holiness, not positional. So you're practically and presently growing. Look at Philippians 2. Look at what it says. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What are you seeing here? Mike Reed, work it out with fear and trembling. God alone figures it out, does it. Okay, worship, cool. I don't get that, but I'm going to go do it. Okay, so as I walk, as I love Jesus, as I get with the faith family, as I fill my mind with the truth, as I pursue Jesus, as I walk in obedience, holiness and righteousness is growing in me as God alone works that out. As God in his sovereign ways enables that to happen. So here's what this means. You are now capable and responsible to work out that righteousness given to you. And here's why this matters. Why is this a good line of defense? Why does it matter that you don't just pray a prayer and get locked in? Why does it matter that that clearly the Christian continues to endure, continues to walk, continues to act, clearly continues to bear fruit, that clearly shows evidence that the conversion was real? Why does that matter? Why does it matter that we pursue holiness and righteous living? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean at all that you're obtaining favor before God or that he loves you more or he's giving you more grace. I'm going to war against that until I die or God removes me from the church here, right? Like we don't do anything good or righteous or holy because we want you to look like a better you, okay? This is actually because it honors God and because it is who you are now. It's your nature. I mean, by nature, you progressively want to do this now. 
because you've been saved and redeemed. So why is this a good line of defense? He's basically saying, if you expect to go into battle, yes, you have to be ready. Yes, you have to be devoted. Yes, you have to know the truth. Yes, you have to know that you are made righteous by Jesus. But if you go in there with with a disobedient heart and an unrepentant heart and unconfessed sin, do you realize the cracks are going to start to show in your armor? And Satan's going to see those cracks and go after them. And he's going to have a foothold. And he's going to start dismantling you and making you useless and joyless and totally take you out. Do you, do you see how that is working together? Do you see how walking in obedience matters in this? If there's, if there's weakness in your armor, I don't mean that Jesus is weak or God is weak. I mean that you grow arrogant or you think you kind of did it or you want to look more holy and puffed up or you don't think sin's a big deal and you start stopping to confess sin or you just kind of remove yourself from the faith family or you just kind of do all these things where you think that's like a a cool idea. It's better to be out there on your own than with the family. All of a sudden, you're going to grow weak and Satan's going to see those areas. He's going to start attacking there and all of a sudden, he's got a foothold in your life. This is, you see this in pastoral ministry. Right? They become so aggressive about ministry and the battle and don't care about personal holiness. So what happens? What happens over time? Satan goes right in there. He sees it. You don't care about walking in practical holiness. You don't care about pursuing a holy life. You're going to become useless. It's going to take you down. You don't think that you putting sin to death matters? In this war, you think you just throw your hands up and go, okay, Jesus, do it all now. I'm just going to sit in my recliner and watch TV. No, you get up, you go out, you ascend the hill. With the greatest army on the planet, which has already been given victory. That's awesome. You're on the winning team. So we are leery of this. We see that. We cannot get so aggressive about a war that we give Satan a foothold and Satan sees the sin and then Satan gets in the cracks and we become vulnerable to the world system. I'll be honest. I don't really know what to do at this point. All I know is that we need to pray and ask God by his Holy Spirit's power to enable us to even give us a desire to want to do that. Because here's the crazy thing in the scriptures. It's not about us leaving and then trying to muster up more courage or trying to like, okay, I'm going to like sell these new goals and like I'm just going to power it out and try harder. And like that only lasts for a season. You realize that in Ephesians 3, chapter we read, Paul says that I have to pray that that God actually enables you to know his love, his joy, his power, his freeing grace, his strength. We actually, by going to God, are dependent on him for even our desire to wage war. So what do we, where do we start? God, give me a desire to kill my sin. Give me a desire to hate sin. Give me a desire to love holiness more. Give me a desire to love righteousness more. Like, guys, listen, you've got to start there. Like, before you read the scriptures, like, just, just, Lord, I know that right when I open up this Bible that already my mind is going to want to say, mm, I don't know if that's true. Like, God, help me to have belief. I mean, rock-solid belief. I mean, when I read about the resurrection, I can, Mike Reed can feel these temptations in my mind, like, oh, did he really rise? I mean, I, I, I know he did, but, man, just affirm that in me, Holy Spirit. Like, like help me to believe that again. So guys, this is, yes, it is a war. It is a persevering walk. There, there, is, there are mountains to climb. There are valleys you get in. There are hilltops you hit where it's beautiful and it's glorious and you're awesome. You're in a good season. Then you, then you trank back down to the trenches and it's hard again and you're, you're warring and you're fighting and it's all different types of seasons. But guys, it's a war. If we have that perspective, that mentality, we will approach life differently. So we say, God, give me a desire for you. Oh my goodness. Lord, I'm lacking. Give me a desire to see, see and understand more of your grace. I'm not feeling it today. I'm not. I know it's true, but I'm, I'm, I'm not understanding it the way I want to. That's okay. That's a great place to be, brothers and sisters. It's okay to acknowledge 
that you're not doing okay. You're feeling tired. You're feeling worn out. That's why we go to him and say, God, enable me. This is hugely important that we walk in who we are. Jesus died for your sin. He gave you his righteousness. So walk in that. Walk in that. Remind yourself of that. Last thing I'll say, God loves you enough to meet you in your sin. But he also loves you enough to compel you out of that sin. And towards him, let's ask him together that he'd, he'd help us as a church to do that. God, I just pray right now that, that you would do something in us, Lord. Something that we're incapable of. I'm acknowledging right here before you, I'm, I'm confessing my inadequacy. God, I'm, I'm admitting that I can't in my own strength defeat sin. You did. And you enable me in this present life to practically destroy the residual effects of Genesis 3 that you hate, that dishonor you. God, make us holy people, not just positionally, but by imparting holiness and righteousness progressively in us, molding and shaping and refining the rough edges where we need to grow and be strengthened. Show us where we're weak. Show us where we're vulnerable. God, I know it's different for everyone in this room. God, make us dependent, utterly dependent on you for our desire, for our ability, for our war. God, thank you that you've given us truth. That you gave us something for the battle. That you gave us righteousness for the battle. God, may we behold these things. May we grab these things and truly use them this week. God, help those of us who are struggling this morning with deep shame, feelings of utter unworthiness. God, they would see the God of the universe saying, come to me. Come to the king. Become a daughter of mine, a son of mine. Run to my son Jesus. He offers mercy and forgiveness and righteousness that you can't obtain on your own. Trust the truth this morning. So you can wear the belt, wear the breastplate, and every other piece of armor will walk. God, as we observe the Lord's Supper, I pray we will remember in the death, burial, and resurrection... The imparted righteousness, the imputed righteousness, the truth that you are, that you gave to us. May we celebrate that well this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.